Welcome back to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, I'm so excited to welcome Sean Pitcock, Project Director at Lower Thames Crossing, Britain's largest road project. Lower Thames Crossing is a £9 billion new road scheme connecting Kent to Essex via a 14.3-mile stretch of new road, including a 2.6-mile tunnel underneath the River Thames. Lower Thames Crossing is a generational capital investment scheme and brings so much benefit to the local communities through shortening journey times, as well as unlocking a huge amount of economic development around South of England. Over the course of the episode, Sean breaks down how you build a business case to justify a £9 billion investment, how you future-proof the infrastructure to allow it to stand the test of time and so much more. If you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify as it will help promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. And with that, let's welcome Sean. So I'm Sean Pidcock. I'm the uh, Programme Director on Lower Thames Crossing. I've been in highways for a number of years, used to run the Smart Motorways Programme and uh, been in the, the infrastructure industry for, for quite a few years, longer than I care to uh, remember. So I know that you spend your every day of your life thinking about big mega infrastructure projects. What does the world look like in, when it comes down to sort of large infrastructure, maybe transport projects in, here in the UK? Obviously, current environment is very challenging. We've been looking at in this country lots of fantastic projects that have been undertaken and are being undertaken. I look at Crossrail, all of the fantastic projects with fantastic outcomes, but they all have challenges. And getting these projects started, setting them up properly, getting the productivity that we want uh, are all big challenges that I think aren't just for those major projects, but are for the industry more generally. And like you say, there, I'm sure there are so many different challenges that are feed into where we find ourselves here today. And there's a huge amount of investment feeding into the infrastructure sector at the minute. One of the interesting themes that is increasingly coming up at the minute is the, what is on sometimes described as the UK's reliance on roads. What's your take on that? I, I think roads is, is a critical part of the broader transport network. And we've got to start looking a bit more in integrated transport solutions. But you can't get away from the fact that I think 91% of journeys are on roads, 80% plus of freight uh, are on roads. And, and it has to be seen as a critical part of that. And we've got to increase capacity, different ways of doing that. Nobody wants to build more and more roads particularly, but we've got to get and look at those strategic places where it really matters. We've got to increase capacity through technology. But I think for, for to get people talk about putting the freight onto rail, and of course, that's part of the solution. But increasing capacity on rail, I, I think it requires something like 15 to 20 high-speed twos to be built. Uh, that, And of course, you always have the end-to-end -end journeys that need to come onto roads anyway. So I, I don't think it's a question of, of one competing against the other. Also, as you look at roads and you look to the future, often it, it's seen as, roads are seen as the higher carbon footprint. But of course, that will change with technology and as the combustion engine starts to be replaced by hydrogen and other options, then uh, actually the operational carbon of roads becomes green, if not greener than the rail. So the two become very comparable. I'd love to spend a bit of time on Lower Thames Crossing. 
Lower Thames Crossing is such a fascinating project because of the scale and the geography. For those unaware of the work that, that you're doing in that area, would you mind maybe just giving a bit of an introduction to it? Yeah, it's interesting with Dartford. Being down in the southeast of London, I think some people probably only come across it when they drive over to France at the end of each year. But it's a critical part of the strategic road network uh, and the section of the strategic road work that is road network that is most under pressure. It's if you look at London, you look at the prosperity, you look at the crossings, all of the crossings are in West London. That's where all the wealth and that's driven by the connectivity and across the river. Now, I think Dartford Crossing itself is significantly under pressure. I think it was designed for about 130,000 vehicles uh, a day. It's now up to 180. And on a Friday, 91% of journeys are delayed. Now, I think 40% of uh, the crossings at Dartford are actually HGVs. It's a critical part of the north-south connection for HGV and goods going over to Europe. And actually, at the moment, with all the delays that are down there, it acts as a choke on, on the British economy. It's a critical part of the network. There's been crossings looked at down there for, for a significant amount of time. I think Lower Thames Crossing started about uh, to be looked at in 2018, if not earlier. That's now progressing well. It's in the DCO stage. But it's the solution. It takes 30% of the traffic out of Dartford. That starts to free up Dartford but it gives a, a route and a reliable route at 70 miles an hour from Dartford and allows a consistency of journey, particularly for those pharmaceuticals, fresh goods and the likes. It gives a reliable journey time up to the Midlands and the North. Now, the low temps crossing area and the Dartford in question is one that is, is close to my heart because I live in London myself. My granny lives the other side of the Dartford Bridge. So I've made that journey many times myself. Sean, I've got to ask you, how are you going to make that journey of me visiting my granny a little bit easier? I don't know if you've seen some of our videos, Jack, but there's some cracking ones around where we've interviewed and voxboxed local community people. One of which dropped his, I think it was his wife, off to go and visit family in the Caribbean. And she got to the Caribbean before he got back to, back to Dartford. Now, it, it has a massive impact on communities and families, as well, as, of course, as business getting across the river. Now, as part of Lower Thames, it takes a lot of the traffic that would be heading to, to Dartford. It, it allows it to come off early, effectively, as it comes from, from France and from the crossings of the channel. It allows it to go north at 70 miles an hour. The, the tunnels at Dartford, which is the north-facing tunnels, were originally built, I think it was in, uh, I think one of them was just celebrating 60 years old. Now, they're significant pieces of infrastructure that have been fantastic, but they weren't designed for modern traffic. It's ironic that we were looking at investing in hydrogen for lower Thames crossing, but actually we don't allow hydrogen to come through the Dartford tunnels, for instance, because the size of the tunnel is a constraint. We have to stop the tunnel every 15 minutes. That has a knock-on impact to journey and traffic through reliability. Uh, and it impacts massively on those local communities where you talk to people, I know some of the people that, that we work with, they, they park a kilometre, two kilometres away from the houses because when it gets bad, they can't actually get out to get and, and to have their journeys. So it will free up Dartford 
at the same time as providing, as I say, much faster and, and reliable journeys up to the north of England. So the Lower Thames Crossing, just to be clear, is it a, is it a tunnel? Is it a bridge? Would you mind just explaining exactly what the, this mega project would deliver us? Yeah, it's a 14.3 miles of new road connecting the M25, A13 and the A2, M2. So it's two twin bore tunnels which run through like modern technology, modern safety systems, which allows it to free flow at 70 miles an hour. And they're, I think, the third largest tunnels in the world, 19 metre diameter. From an engineering perspective, very exciting. We've got some tunnelers who, who just love to tell you how large it is and are really looking forward to building it. From an asset point and a broader concept, of course, it's nowhere near really as complicated as something like Crossrail or High Speed 2 because we haven't got the integration systems. Uh, and I think that's what makes it from a, I think we're incredibly well set up and it's what makes it such a, a, a valuable asset and, and why we're committed and have a lot of confidence in our ability to deliver to both time and cost. Uh, 17 metres provides a great deal of opportunity to enable the work and the fit out of, of the systems, as well as, as look at sort of innovations of productivity. I mean, if you look at the, it's interesting, we, we've often gone up to the line contract on high speed two, which is two 18 kilometre tunnels for, for the rail for high speed two. And roughly, the di- because of the diameter, their tunnels are roughly the same as ours in terms of volume at 18 kilometres versus ours at just over two. It's a really interesting one because it's such a, an impactful project. And to many people, maybe even outside of the infrastructure space, it's one of these big construction projects that just they'll maybe only come into contact with it, maybe because they'll see some roadworks or whatever else. But actually, when you drill into the numbers, it's a, just an, an incredible investment. And it really is one of those sort of big generational investment pieces because of the scale of lives that it can benefit. And one of the things that really first got me into this, the world of infrastructure is I spoke to someone from National Highways, then Highways England, at a conference. And they were telling me about this new sort of small little bypass work that they were working on. And to many people, just a bit of construction work on the motorway that they drive past on the way to work. But then when I then spoke to them about it in a little bit more detail, this bypass had the opportunity to actually save local residents about sort of 30 or 40 minutes on their way to work. And for something that is so unsexy and something so physical and something that is sometimes received negatively by members of the public. Having something that can allow people to have maybe an extra hour and a half at home with their family is just, for me, a complete game changer. And that's what makes it so special. And I think Lower Thames Crossing is a really good example of that. Yeah, the connectivity is some amazing statistics of the lack of economic activity between Kent and Essex. And communities are separated by it because it's so unreliable and so difficult to get over the river that people don't make the journeys. Or even worse, from a carbon point of view, drive all the way around the M25 to avoid it at times. Um, so what we will provide is reliable journey, as I say, at 70 miles an hour through the tunnel. It you know, doubles the capacity across the Thames and will connect communities. I think that gets forgotten quite a lot. 
nine yeah. out of 10 journeys and miles and travel by road. 91%, as I said, of freight goes by road. And from a personal point of view, I always believe it, it's fantastic to work on a project that you actually believe in. And I think as you talked about layer terms and transformers, I think we're quite unique in many ways. We're not a mega project that means that everybody mobilizes and it can become quite difficult to control. No, we are a good-sized project that provides fantastic opportunity in, in an area actually of huge growth. The whole of the, the Thames area down there is forecast to grow and the situation is only going to get worse. And car travel is expected to increase by, forecast to increase by 20%. But that area, much greater. So it's going to suffer much further. And most of that is economic growth down there. It's something like, it, it, whilst it's not in the north of England, that doesn't mean to say that the whole of the southeast is wealthy. And the communities down there are at the lower end uh, of average economic earnings. And Lower Thames provides a great opportunity to upskill that workforce and provide jobs for that connectivity and transformation. I think it's what transportation is about. It helps drive that economic growth and actually allows the private sector to thrive because it can communicate, because it can get reliable drivers, it can deliver when it says it's going to deliver. Um, and that provides a great opportunity for the whole area. And as I say, from a personal perspective, I think it's really important to really believe in the benefits that you can give to communities and believe in your project. Uh, we've got a team that's, I think, making a massive difference. Um, we're very, we've got an initiative at the moment on, on purpose-led, but for us, it's around driving the lowest carbon. We touched on it a little bit, I'm sure we'll come on to it. Um, it's about improving that overall productivity. I think we've done some quite unique things within the procurement. Um, headline is carbon. You know, we set a target that was 30% below industry average, taking all of the best learnings across the whole of the industry. And there's a client demanding it of our, of our delivery partners. And I must say, we've had this ingrained now for about three years, right from the very beginning. We signaled it and the industry has loved it. I think they've really come up and stepped them up. The whole industry, I think, is desperate to to move us on both in technology and in carbon. And the submissions that we've got back have been fantastic. So we set the target at 30%. The industry has come back and said, we can beat that by at least another 20%. And actually, if you help us, this is how we can get even further. So we've got great ambitions in that space, but not just the carbon, but I think it's linked to the overall productivity. I know you're passionate about productivity, digital and technology. And we've built that into the procurement and the exercise. So as a client, we've specified data standards, how we're going to work. We're looking at the putting in the 5G network, making sure that we're well set up at the very start of the project so we can provide the climate and the environment for our delivery partners to thrive. For those maybe less familiar with the process that, say, a National Highways has to go through to design and build something like this, would you mind breaking it down a little bit and speaking about maybe some of the timelines that we've seen with Lower Thames Crossing? Yes, I think I wish we were starting to build. Certainly when I joined, that was the intention yeah, to be building that. The, I, I think the, I mean, I joined three and a half years ago and we've been in the planning process now for quite some time. 
we're significantly different to other infrastructure, particularly things like High Speed 2 that went down the hybrid grill. So we've gone through a development consent order, a DCO, as part of that planning, which was introduced I can't a number of years ago. It's a quite an established planning approval process now that most major infrastructure goes through. Uh, and it's got certain advantages. It's very difficult to, I think, to sometimes, but there's a massive difference between that and the hybrid bill. What the DCO aims to do is to consult with stakeholders and gets you to commit at the point of order. So before you actually start on site, it makes sure that you've got those commitments in place. What that's meant is we've spent many years working up our proposals. We've had a very stable engineering solution now for well, since before I joined, so probably four or five years. From an engineering perspective, very little has changed. We've made a few changes. We've extended the tunnel underneath the Ramsar site. And we've spent a number of years looking at how we can mitigate the, the overall environmental impact, how we can improve the offering to the local communities, working with stakeholders and local stakeholders. And, and all the local polls show that there's significant support for the project. What that means, though, is that you do invest a lot more upfront. Um, we're currently in the examination period, which is a statutory six-month six period. That finishes at the end of December. That then goes into the PINs planning recommendation period of a statutory three months. Three months later, the Secretary of State is has to determine whether we get planning. And at that point, all of the powers come into place. What we've spent time in the background doing is looking at well, we've been procuring our delivery partners. We've got two on board already, which is Balfabiti and Skanska. Working with them, looking how we can improve efficiency, how we can improve planning, how we can improve the offering as well to those local communities and start setting up the supply chain with them and getting their commitment to the commitments and improving the offering that we can make. The tunnels contract should be announced in the next month or so. We're just finishing off the final throes of governance. As an area, it's got a history baked in construction. You've got all the historic, lots of great communities and a lot of businesses actually in the area. So there's a, there's a fantastic opportunity to leverage that and leave a great legacy on the public. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And it's super exciting that you've now got your delivery partners on board. I'm really interested in the, the carbon side of things. You mentioned that 30% target, which... 30% target in, in carbon reduction, which is bold in itself. And you then had feedback from some of your suppliers that actually they think they could do more than that. How does a lower Thames crossing and its delivery partners go about achieving a, even a 30% reduction in carbon? This is where we've got a couple of experts in particular. And Matt Palmer is our executive director for lower Thames. Is also leading the CLC, the, the client leadership in construction group in carbon reduction. And that's really helped actually. So he's XE throw, he's been through it actually, setting the ambition right from the very beginning and understanding how we can drive it out. We've, we've got also Andrew Kidd who's been working on it, who, who's really become the brains behind this. But I think for us, it was setting that ambition right at the very beginning, signalling, if you think of the IPA government route map for, for digital as well, but also with the carbon, it starts at the very beginning and it means being consistent with your ambitions for the project. 
alongside that, it requires us to be an intelligent client. So we've looked at where we can make the savings, looked at proven technology, taking a bit of the Olympics, if you like, approach of what's proven today and how can we drive it out. So the starting point for that is looking at the standard, more readily available ways of reducing carbon in concrete, looking at steel, where can we actually look at it? What quantities have we got? Where can we get it from? How can we build that and set that as a minimum standard? So that once we let the contract, it doesn't just go to a QS, it goes and gets the cheapest steel. We've built all of that in and built the processes in to, to set that baseline. And we shared that baseline with our delivery partners as part of the overall bidding process. Then we engage with the uh, delivery partners and industry more widely. We've been to huge amounts of visits. We were down at Port Talbot a week ago, looking at how within the country and wider, what's available out there, how can we make sure that we demand it on lower terms crossing? Separately to that, what we didn't want to do was award the contract based on false promises and, and not hold anyone to it. So we've been looking at the, the overall carbon baseline, so we drove it down 30%. The procurement's driven down another 20 plus percent. And we're, we're willing to commit to that as part of the overall planning process. And so that it's baked in so that we will be held to account against delivering that. Now, the big focus for us is you look at the big big areas, which is the, the concrete, steel and diesel and we've got an initiative at the moment, which Kat, who, who ran our procurement, she's out at the moment procuring for hydrogen. So I think we've got 6,000 tonnes of hydrogen because it's, it's a barrier to hydrogen plant, which we've been engaging with the OEMs, looking at what the art of the possible is, timescales wise, when will the hydrogen plant be available? How can we as a client help facilitate it? not just pass it down the supply chain, but work with the supply chain to enable the innovation to be brought forward. And our ambition is to leave a legacy in the area for those communities. And we've been talking to people like Havering who are very keen to see how we can leave a hydrogen legacy. I'm a great believer in hydrogen. I think it's been on the back burner for, for far too long. Our ambition is to have carbon-free sites. And it does exist. Matt and Kat were on a visit to Oslo, visiting carbon-free sites, and actually one of those was Skanska. So we need to bring that and demand it and make sure that it happens in the UK. But as a client, we can't just sit back and, and point the finger. We've got to be facilitating, setting the right environment. So alongside the targets and the baseline, we then ask the delivery partners to give us their ambitions and show us how, as businesses, they are developing innovation because we know that when this project finishes in 10 years' time, you know, the world will look a different place. Some of the things that are ambitious now will be the norm. Um, and we don't want to look like a project that was designed 10 years ago. So you know, we need to be at the forefront of that. And to do that, we set a provision aside so that we carry the risk. We can keep injecting and incentivizing to, to bring that innovation. And I think we're of a size where we are big enough to have control and so we were a carbon pathfinder as a project. Uh, it allows us to just get up to a critical mass and pump prime the industry for some of these innovations. It does really provide everyone such a incredible test bed for these new capabilities. 
because you've got a bit of everything on no attempts crossing. So there's so much opportunity to trial new capabilities and really help use it to inform where the rest of the market goes, which is, is super exciting. And I, I want to touch on future proofing. And this is something that you alluded to there. Okay, we're going to finish the work, maybe sort of 10 years time or so. How do we build something that is able to remain dynamic and supportive of the continually changing world that we live in? For something that is of such sheer size that is Lois M's Crossing, how do you tackle the, the need to future-proof it? I, I think it's some of it's time-bound. And we will have to start. You look at some of the, the structures. I'm a big advocate of modern methods of construction, although I don't particularly like the phrase because I think actually, if you look back through history, we're probably some, it feels like we're sometimes better at some of these things a hundred years ago. I think from the way that we construct, we need to keep agile and look at those opportunities and not make them in too early. We've committed to modern methods of construction in DFMA, and we've got that golden thread of designing. We set the standards, we've got the BIM, that needs to flow through to designing solutions that are low carbon. Those low carbon solutions will hopefully stand the test of time, but also we've got to be able to take a risk. So we've got a number of innovations that we're hoping to be able to test, but that means challenging the standards. And that needs to be us as a client that, that provides that environment for our delivery partners to bring their best and to bring those innovations from all over Europe and the rest of the world. It's often a barrier to, to allowing us to take it forward. More widely, I think when you look at the design and a lot of the technology that we put onto roads now, this is going to be a challenge. We've got all the gantries, we've got all the connectivity. Now, currently looking, we will have a 5G network up that will enable connectivity during construction, It'll, we'll, we're looking at how we can support also connectivity in some of the relatively rural, rural communities. But alongside that, then it leaves a legacy for connectivity to the vehicles. Now, at the moment, a lot of that is, is hardwired into the highway tech. And personally, I'd like to see that change. Do, can we become more efficient? It will become a challenge because we have to design to current standards. But things like gantries, I think everybody expects that they'll have a limited lifespan ultimately and at some point we have to start taking them out i don't think we should be designing for 60 years when something could be coming out in 10 years but then again technology never actually progresses it's acceptance of technology i think technology goes quite quickly but people have got to feel comfortable and safe how quickly that comes out will be quite difficult to determine i think with regard to the systems and the likes that are in the tunnel I think they're, they're fairly standard, to be honest, and, and, and we'll often have a, an upgrade and a refresh as we go through. But it's the acceptance and the ability of the connectivity of the cars and the vehicles that will be travelling on it, and that connectivity is going to become more and more critical uh, as we, we go through the years. It's what just came to mind there when you were talking about some of the technology and the, the technology that will come down the line. The thing that came to mind for me was Elon Musk's project in Vegas, which was the tunnel through Vegas. It's like a, a train for cars. It's a bit of a conveyor belt. It's an interesting one, but I, that image came to my mind thinking about all of these autonomous vehicles going through the tunnel from, from Kent to Essex. 
But you look at, I know we all, we're all engineers and we have design lives and everything that goes with it, but the reality of it is most of the assets that are built far survive and outlive their design life. I talked about the Dartford tools, the existing ones. Now, that equally can't go on forever, but they something like Lower Thames is there for generations. We, we look at business cases over a number of years and specified formula, but actually it's an asset that will be there for future generations in 100 years plus. Alongside all the technology, you still need the physical asset, and there will still be two 17-metre diameter tunnels that are there. We're still driving on some of the roads where that have been since the Romans, when you start digging down too far down. These are assets that are going to facilitate the development in the area, facilitate the connectivity and the communications and the economy between us and, and Europe. And it will be there for an awful long time. And when you speak about the business case and you think about that timeline, it must really be able to demonstrate some quite strong numbers when you compare the scale of investment required versus the numbers that you'll get over the decades or maybe even century to come. Would you mind maybe just expanding on what the two sides of that coin looked like for Lower Thames Crossing? I, I think there's the, the business case is made up of a number of strands. We've got the management business case, all of that, which is all follow, follows a very established formula. A lot of it, of course, comes down to journey time, the value of people's time, and, and it follows a calculated formula, which is why you know, a lot of, for instance, London Underground, if you can knock 30 seconds off such huge volumes of people, then you can make a very solid uh, business case for quite major investment. Equally why some of the investment sometimes in the North struggles because it becomes difficult and you have to forecast future growth and it becomes a barrier to, to getting projects on the ground. I think what often gets overlooked is the much broader strategic business case. You look at the Jubilee line, look at Docklands like Row and what happened at Stratford with the the Olympics, you know, it's opened up massive amounts of growth and housing, shopping, a whole economy in East London on what was wasteland and contaminated land that would never have been addressed because of the investment. Now, personally, I think that's what we are there for. It's for unlocking that opportunity. It's about longer term strategic development. Now, Lower Thames Crossing has got a fantastic business case. And more than means that, that for every pound that's invested, we get more money back. But actually, I think that only tells part of the story. The, the story is about the strategic investment and growth that will come and that Lower Thames facilitates. I talked about the disruption at Dartford. That's a choke on the economy that, that really doesn't get measured. So even without the growth, you've got a constraint there. I think 180,000 vehicles go over Dartford every day, but more can't get through because it's at capacity. If you want growth, if you want a business case, then you need to free up. You free up that alongside the other growth in the area, and Lower Thames facilitates that. Thames Estuary Growth Board have been fantastic supporters of ours, and because they understand the impact that we can have, not just in the area, but much more broadly. And that, as I said, you can look at the design life, you can look at however many years you can do and run the calculations over. I'm not an economist, but I, I can tell you I am an engineer and Lower Thames Crossing will be around for many years past its design life. 
because it'll be constructed with quality. We get these days out of our products and look at the tube tunnels, look at the impact that it makes. You know, it, it's a great project and I'm very proud to, to work on it. I love it. Sean, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.